chapter 3. Brother Moses Torres, when he's up here with us, he says he likes coming to our church because we're more like a Mexican church than an American church. And I think he's probably right in a lot of respects. We are sort of, as we shall say, laid back, perhaps to a fault. But uh, it is good to just sort of let loose and praise the Lord. I enjoy that today very much. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 21. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. But everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. We come now in our study of the chronological life of Christ to this most favorite passage of Scripture. I know it must be because every sports event that I see has somebody in the end zone holding up a big sign that says John 3.16. Somebody told me one time that guy actually considers himself a missionary and he goes from place to place and buys up tickets to these ball games so he'd always get on television. Well, at any rate, everybody, because of that fella, if because of no other reason, knows that John 3.16 is a very important verse, and rightly so, it truly is. Some theologians have termed it the little gospel. It is the gospel in a nutshell. But I would have you remember, as we so often forget, that John 3.16 is, after all, found in the midst of a context. The old saying is, if you take a text out of its context, you have nothing but a pretext, and there is some truth to that. We need to see how John 3.16 fits in to the overall scope and discussion that has been now going on for this whole chapter. Remember that Jesus is in a discussion with Nicodemus, who has come to him because he's been impressed by the miracles that Jesus has been performing. And right off the bat, Jesus, uh, after Nicodemus' attempts, as it were, to butter him up, lays a bombshell on Nicodemus, telling him that if he is not born again, born from above, born of water and spirit, he terms it, that he cannot see the kingdom, he cannot enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus is just absolutely flabbergasted. What are you talking about? How can this be? How can a man, when he's old, climb back in his mother's womb and be born all over again? And Jesus takes him to task, says, you should know these things. This is not something new, I'm telling you. This is something already revealed, and we've seen that indeed this truth, the truth of the necessity of the new birth for inclusion in this thing called the kingdom of God, this new covenant, has already been prophesied back in Ezekiel chapter 36, where it is said, not in the words that Jesus uses here, but similar words, that God would wash them with clean water, and that he would take away the stony heart out of their flesh and put a heart that's sensitive to his word in their 
in their body, and he would put his spirit within them and cause them to keep his commandments and walk after his statutes and judgments. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, are you a master of Israel? Are you a teacher and you don't know this? This is very elementary. And Nicodemus, and this is important now, if you'll follow the the train of thought, if you do not believe me concerning earthly things, how will you believe me concerning heavenly things? Notice the contrast there in verse 12 between earthly things and heavenly things. And clearly the new birth of all things falls into the category of earthly things. I mean, that seems rather strange to us. We think of earthly things as being stuff like, you know, wind blowing, and tangible things, physical things. But here Jesus clearly puts the new birth into the category of earthly things. And I mean, and, and I think John Brown in his excellent uh, book, The Discourses and Sayings of Our Lord, I believe he hit the nail right on the head, when he says that by earthly things, what our Lord means are those things which were already revealed. Now, we spent our Sunday school class, they're sort of pumped and primed here because we were talking about this very contrast between earthly things and heavenly things. The earthly system under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant legislation, as opposed to the heavenly system, the New Covenant that's come upon the scene, according to the book of Hebrews. So here is an Old Covenant thing, an Old Testament prophecy already in existence in Jesus saying, to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you don't believe me concerning things that have already been revealed, how in the world are you going to believe the new things that I'm about to bring upon you? And you say, what new things? Well, things like what follows. Because Nicodemus, remember in verse 9, asked the question, how can these things be? You must be born again. Nicodemus says, how? Can these things be? And it is replied in verse 14 and 15. Well, it's like Moses when he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that those dying of the bites of those poisonous snakes, all they had to do was just turn and look at that brass snake on the pole and they lived. Nicodemus, it's this way it's going to work. If you will, here's the mechanics of how life is going to come to dying men. It's going to be like that, Nicodemus. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that whosoever believes on Him will not perish but have eternal life. It's going to work like it worked back there in the wilderness. You ask the question, how can it be that a man could have new life It's going to work like this. There's the mechanism. But now in verse 16, and I think sometimes when we quote verse 16 so much, we forget that after all it follows right on the heels of what I think is probably the most important verses of John 3, 14 and 15, where Jesus has described the mechanics of how this new life is going to come to men. Now in verse 16, he's going to tell us three things. He's told us the mechanics of how it's going to work. Now he's going to tell us the motive behind this new life. He's going to tell us the method for how it will come into existence. And he will tell us the means of how we receive it. Those three things. The motive behind this new life the method of producing it, 
and the means of receiving it. That's what John 3.16 tells us. In other words, John 3.16 is actually an explanation of verses 14 and 15. It's an enlargement upon this statement that is Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that as they look to the serpent and receive physical life, those who look in faith to Christ will receive eternal spiritual life. Now why in the world, who in the world would do such a thing? The Son of Man was a known appellation, a known label for the Messiah. Jesus constantly employs it in speaking of himself. What do you mean that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And again, I refer you back to last Sunday when we talked about that phrase, lifted up, and traced it through the Gospel of John and showed that it clearly is a meaning that has, it sort of has a double meaning. And that they knew that to be lifted up didn't necessarily mean a good thing. In fact, later in the Gospel of John, when he talks about the fact that the Son of Man must be lifted up and draw all men to him, you know, we quote that a lot, the people say, wait a minute, what do you mean the Son of Man must be lifted up? We thought... The Messiah, the Christ, when he comes, he's going to live forever. And you're saying he must be lifted up. You see, the people knew and understood that this idea of being lifted up meant being hung on a pole, hung up as a curse. It had that meaning to the people of that day. Who would do such a thing to the Christ? And why would they lift up the Son of Man, so that men might look to Him and believe. And John has an answer, for God so loved the world. We can trace the motive to this mechanics, this this scheme, or we often use the word plan, plan of salvation. Oops, got to watch it. We use that language in speaking of the, the scheme or what I've called the mechanics this morning, why in the world, who would do such a thing? Well, God would do such a thing. And why would he do it? He would do it because God loved the world. Now, you and I, we're raised in a religious climate today that everybody just assume God loves you. I mean, you know, we see it on the bumper stickers. Smile, God loves you. We just assume that God loves us. I mean, what else is God for? What else he got to do besides love me? Of course, why wouldn't he love me? Everybody ought to love me. You know, if they don't love me, it's their problem. And sure, God loves me. I'm such a wonderful fellow, such a lovable, cuddly thing that God surely looks down from heaven upon me and loves me. Now, may I wipe all of those thoughts out of your mind this morning by saying there is every reason in the world why God, when he looks upon you, ought to look upon you with nothing but disdain and disgust and to wipe you off the face of this earth and put you right smack dab in hell. That's what we have been told in the Gospel of John since chapter 1. Light came into the world, but men wanted nothing to do with it. They rejected the light. The the builder, the creator of this earth came to his own things in John chapter 1. His own received him not. The creator came to his creation and his creation hated him. You get the scheme that you have to understand that from the biblical point of view, this statement is an astounding statement. That God loved the world. 
Now, I know another problem is that we tend to look at the word world here, and we try to make it a quantity, a number. You know, we say, well, God loved, his love is great big love because he loves so many. The idea of number or quantity is completely absent from the word world. I know that's how we use the word. When we say, well, he loves the whole world, we often hear preachers say that means that you can take out the word world and put your name there. For God so loved Mark Webb. But that completely misses the point, and it misses how Nicodemus would have understood this. Here is Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He represents the kind of thinking that was prevalent in Jesus' day, that God loves us. God loves Israel. But you see, there's this great big thing out there, the world, the, the great unwashed Gentiles. And God most certainly does not love them. God may have a love for Israel, but not for them. And for Jesus to make this statement, this is a shocking thing to a man like Nicodemus. You're telling me God loves the world more than just Israel? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And it even is more astounding when we consider how the word world is used throughout the Gospel of John. How could God love the world? When you start looking at how the world is characterized in the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Go to the latter chapters of John here. John 15. This is the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. Look what he says in verse 18. John 15 verse 18. Jesus says, and he's sort of explaining things, given the facts of life, as it were, to his disciples. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now notice how the word world is being used here. It is this evil cosmos, that's the Greek word that's translated world, this evil world system. And it hates me, and it hates, it's going to hate you. And if you were of the world, it's sort of like a foreign, you know, you put foreign tissue inside your body, what happens? Well, your bodily, body, its immune system, if your immune system's working, mobilizes its defenses and attacks this Material, this tissue that it sees as foreign or strange. And that's what Jesus is describing here about the world. The world hated me. I'm not of the world. He kept telling them in John, I didn't, I'm not of the world. You are, but I'm not. I came from heaven. He's a foreign substance, as it were, that has come into the world. And the world has turned its hatred upon him, is attacking him. And it won't just be him. It'll be these he has chosen out of the world. Now notice, in all of this, the world is not being set apart here as something lovable. Did you notice that? It's, it's being set apart as the very enemy and antagonist of God. And if you don't see it there, go to First John. Oh, it's crystal clear here. In First John chapter 2, First John chapter 2, in verse 15, John writes, same John, by the way, same John that said God so loved the world, wrote this, love not the world. 
Isn't that strange? Love not the world. I suppose we want to put our names in there. In John 3.16, we ought to put our names in here, don't you suspect? Love not Mark Webb. Neither the things that are in Mark Webb. Uh, for, all, for if any man love Mark Webb, the love of the Father is not in him. We're going to substitute our name one place. We ought to be able to do it everywhere, don't you think? If that's the meaning that it has. But notice how the world is set as a system that is absolutely opposed to God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. My. Well, then back to this statement. God so love the world. It is because of this problem. I, I hope... You know, we read John 3.16, just sort of take it matter-of-factly. But do you understand the theological problem that John 3.16 sets before us? That God loved this thing called the world? The world that if I love it, the love of the Father is not in me? Do, Do you understand the theological problem? And to solve that problem, theologians have resorted to a number of little, little tricks. There are some friends of mine who say, well, the word world here cannot mean world in the sense that it was used in John, 1 John 2. It must mean the world of the elect. It's just the elect that God loved. Not everybody in the world, but just some, the elect in the world. Well, I understand what they're saying and I know where they're going because I've tried to go there myself. But that's playing awfully fast and loose with the Word of God because I'll tell you this, that nowhere in the New Testament do I believe that the word world means the world of the elect. Again, may I point out to you that they're trying to make a word mean quantity. How many? When the really sense of the word is not how many, but what kind. The quality of this thing called the world. But that's one of the things that is resorted to. That God cannot possibly love the world. He just loves the elect. His chosen ones in the world. But I believe there is a much better explanation. That we can understand the word world in this sense. It's best translated in our vernacular, I believe. By the term mankind. That comes as close to interpreting the flavor of this word world as any word we could pick. God loved man. Mankind. Now you notice when we say that God loves mankind, we don't necessarily mean he loves every man. Or you're not talking about which man. What we're saying is, is that God loved man in a way that he did not love angels. The angels that fell, there was nothing given for them. No ransom paid, no redemption, no propitiation. You asked angels, does God love fallen angels? Absolutely not. But asked angels, does God love fallen man? Oh yes, God loved. Man, when he didn't love angels. Do do you see the distinction? And when you use the word mankind, it also points out that 
to save mankind, you don't have to save every man. I mean, the flood in the Noah's day, in one sense, destroyed mankind, destroyed the world. The Bible uses that word, right? But God saved the world, didn't he? He saved mankind. Didn't have to save them all now. He just saved eight. But in the saving of eight, he saved man. Man as an order of being. Man as a species of being, as we say. And so the sense here is not so much how many God loved. Get that notion of quantity and individuality out of your head. It's the kind of thing that God loved. That God loved and He loved the kind of thing that is absolutely opposite to His character. Absolutely opposed to His rule. It's like saying there was this rebellious planet... You know, all the universe was submitted, has submitted itself to the rule of God Almighty. But there's this one planet, this one speck of dust, the third rock from the sun, that is a rebellious planet, that hates the rule of its creator. And the creator ought to come and blow it, you know, with the starship. We're seeing sort of science fiction, fish, no, fiction metaphor here. But you know, ought to bring those, those Death Star over and blow it into a thousand pieces. That's what it deserves. And instead, the ruler of the universe, out of love, has made an overture, a gracious and merciful offer of mercy. To this rebellious, filthy, vile place called earth. To this thing called the world. In some sense, I, 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 I hate to throw this out to you because I'm afraid it might confuse you. Worse than you are already. But there's a sense in which there is a duality and I keep running into this. Jim Gables, uh, Jeff's here from Birmingham. Jim and I have tossed this around for a long time, a number of years now, about this dual sense in which God, there's sort of the, the love of God's desires and the love of His sovereign will, the love of His purposes. And not always are the love, is the, the desires of God's, shall I say, the, the will of God's desires, not always are those the will of His purposes. Does that seem strange? I mean, if I were God and I was pleased to do something and I was a big kid on the block, I'd do it. Why wouldn't I do what pleases me? But God sometimes does that which does not please Him. That's strange. But I can give you a number of examples in the Old Testament where that is the case. You can see it in Ezekiel where he pleads with the wicked, turn ye. Turn you. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, who's going to kill the wicked? God will. God will destroy them. Well, why does he destroy them if he has no pleasure in their destruction? Do you see the problem there? But the point of Ezekiel is, is that God doesn't get his kicks out of destroying people. What he desires is that men turn. Turn you. Turn you. Why will you die? There's a very fascinating passage about Moab, of all things. Jeremiah chapter 46, 48. Jeremiah 48. 
to be honest, never had seen this before. Moab, of course, was that land down to the, over on the, uh, to the east of Israel. In Moab, in Jeremiah chapter 48, in verse 26, we see this judgment that is to be brought upon the land of Moab. Jeremiah 48, 26, make him drunk. Speaking of Moab, for he magnifieth himself against the Lord. Moab also shall wallow in his vomit, and he also shall be in derision. For was not Israel a derision unto thee? Was he found among thieves? For since thou didst speak of him, thou skippest for joy. In other words, you rejoiced over what you were able to do to Israel. Then verse 28, O ye that dwell in Moab, leave the cities, dwell in the rock, be like the dove that maketh her nest in the sides of the hole's mouth. We have heard the pride of Moab. He's exceedingly proud. His loftiness and his arrogancy, his pride and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, saith the Lord, but it shall not be so. His lies shall not so affect it. And then verse 31, Therefore will I howl for Moab, and I will cry out for all Moab. My heart shall mourn for the men of Kirhiris. Do you see the same God who is pronouncing this terrible, awful judgment upon the land of Moab turns around and says, yet my heart mourns for Moab. A little later in verse 36, he says, therefore mine heart shall sound for Moab like pipes, the flutes. My heart shall sound like flutes for the men of Kahiris because the riches that he hath gotten are perished. God is bringing this judgment upon men and then bemoaning the fact that judgment is befalling them. You see, isn't this strange? Boy, you surely wouldn't find anything like that in the New Testament, would you? Or would you? When Jesus stands looking over the city of Jerusalem and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that sent unto thee, how oft I would have gathered thee as a hen doth her chicks, and ye would not, weeping and wailing, because of a judgment that if we read the New Testament correctly, he himself will bring upon them. Yes, there is this dual sense. Two senses, as it were, of the love of God. And I think that helps explain it, that there are different levels of God's love. We use sort of think of God's love as just having sort of a one dimension. But we don't use it that way. There's a sense in which you men, you may love all women. I hope you do. But then there's another sense in which you love one woman in a sense that you don't love all women. Right? Use the same word. But there is a particular special love that you have for your wife that does not extend to all women. Ladies, you may love children. You may love all children. But you don't love all children the way you love your children. And so it is that there are different levels of the love of God. And what John is explaining is that there is one level of God's love and kindness and benevolence that extends to this world. Now that's not the same as the love with which he loves his own, his children, believers, those that are in the family of God. But there is a general benevolence, a loving kindness, if you will, using the words of the prophets, a loving kindness that is directed towards all men. 
Now, that may raise your hackles, but I don't understand how else to explain what Jesus tells me to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says that I am to love my enemies. I'm to pray for those that mistreat me and persecute me and say all kinds of bad things about me. I'm to bless them. And he says, because that's the way your heavenly Father is. Now, he doesn't ever say that God loves his enemies or loves those that curse him, but it's implied there. If that's what I am to do because that's what it's to be like my heavenly Father, then it's clear that there must be some kind of love that is also directed by God towards his enemies. And is that not what the gospel tells us? Even when we were yet sinners, when we were enemies, that's the word Paul uses in Romans, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And of course the fact is, is that I'm glad God loved the world. Because you see, once I was in the world... The disciples, notice Jesus is saying, I've chosen you out of the world. They were once in this thing called the world. And the disciples are to go to make disciples of other nations that are in the world. Do do you see, that's our mission, that's our ministry. And I sure am glad God loves the world. Well, we'll lay this aside because here we've spent a lot of time on this and I've got a long way to go here. But let me quickly give you two more things. The method of this love. How does God love? And all this is so important, and I hate to rush over it, but let me quickly say that God loves mainly as an act of his will rather than an act of his emotion. You ladies, you pick up a newborn baby, Brenda, (laughs) you've no doubt had this experience. Oh, my friend, that's not how God loves us. Because when he looked at me, he didn't see a lovely, cuddly thing that just drew his affection out towards me. What he saw was a filthy, vile, unclean, unrighteous thing that every emotion that God would have had would have cried out, cast him away, destroy him and that forever. May he perish in that eternally. So you see, God's love does not work because of us. It works in spite of us. In spite of what God saw in the world. He loved it. That's what John means when he said God so loved the world. You know, again, in English, we think he's talking about God loved the world so much. The word actually is an adverb. It's telling you not how much God loved the world, but how God loved the world. He loved the world this way. What way? How did God love the world? If you ask the early church, if you ask the apostles, how do you know that God loves God loves us. They would not have said, we know God loves you because don't you have this wonderful feeling down deep in your heart that you're just being cuddled by God? Isn't? They would not point you to emotions in any sense of the word. You know what their universal answer is? You'll find it in John, in 1 John. In this was manifested the love of God. Here's how God loved you. In this was manifested the love of God in that God sent His Son into the world. 
And that's what the text is telling us. God so loved the world. He loved the world like this. He gave. Oh my, He gave. And we're reminded to never have the notion that, you know, here's the kind, compassionate, loving Son of God, and there's this mean, evil Father. Oh, not evil, but strict and stern, judgmental. And and salvation is the kind, loving son somehow swaying and changing the mind, persuading this strict father. Oh no. John is telling us that behind the son coming, there is a father sending. Behind the son of man being lifted up, There is a father who gave. And the word gave is not so much like I give you a gift at Christmas time, give you a present. It's the sense of giving over. It's it's put so plainly by Paul in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's what's going on here. It's not that just God's decided to give us a Christmas present, send His Son into the world. But God gave Him over, gave Him up, surrendered Him, delivered Him up, delivered Him up to the cross, delivered Him up to that torture stake. God forfeited the dearest and nearest, His one and only Son. That's what those words, only begotten. I know God has sons by adoption. You and I are His children by adoption. He has sons by creation in the sense the angel sometimes referred by that label. But oh my friend, this Son is unique. There is not another like Him. It's the one and only Son of God. The nearest and dearest thing to God. He surrendered. He forfeited. He gave. Oh, and it goes on to the means of receiving. That's, we've talked about the mechanics in verse 14 and 15. The motive, the method of producing this life, God giving, surrendering His Son. But we need to spend the last few minutes here talking about the means of the receiving of this life. Because that's, after all, what Nicodemus was interested in. Remember, we were talking about a kingdom back earlier. You do remember that. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except he be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We were, remember, talking about a kingdom. And what Jesus is now pointing out is the nature of this kingdom, that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom where life reigns, is a kingdom quite unlike any earthly kingdom. We're used to thinking of kingdoms in the sense of boundary lines down on, you know, pieces of ground. You, some of you crossed from the kingdom of Tennessee into the kingdom of Mississippi, you know, coming to church today. Uh, we, we, you say, well, when did I do that? Well, when you cross that line up there on the highway. Or we may cross, say, from the kingdom of Mexico into the kingdom of the United States when you cross the Rio Grande. That's how we're used to thinking of kingdoms. They're demarcated by lines on the ground. But what Jesus is now explaining is that the kingdom of heaven doesn't work like that. Oh, there's an in and there's an out, but it's not a light on the ground. You know what determines in and out? Faith in Jesus Christ. 
that whosoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, the lines of this kingdom may run right through a town, may run right through a family, may run right down through the bed between husband and wife. This is a strange kingdom. In and out has nothing to do with where you are. But it has to do with do you believe? Do you truly believe on Jesus Christ? That's the in and out. Now Jesus in the next verses explains that his mission in coming into this world was not to condemn it, not to judge it. He didn't need to. Was already condemned, already under the sentence of judgment. Do you remember James and John, sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder? They got all upset when the Samaritans wouldn't receive Jesus into their village and says, "Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did?" You know, let's just judge this town. I know a little bit of that, don't you? <laughs> I'd like to do that every now and then out on the freeway, you know, and just zap that guy. That's exactly their, their rhyme and reason. And Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, this does not mean that he's not the judge. In fact, the rest of the New Testament tells us that he is the judge. Judgment has been surrendered to him in John chapter 5. In Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, Paul says to those pagan philosophers that God has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, concerning whom he has given us all assurance and that he raised him from the dead. He's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. He's the judge. And oh yes, one day he will come in judgment to render judgment. But that's not why he came this time. That's not the rationale. He didn't need to come to condemn the world. It's already under the sentence of condemnation and death. But oh, he had to come like this to save the world. And to do something very, very strange, and this is the meaning of these words in verse 19, and this is the condemnation. Literally, this is the verdict. He did come to pronounce a verdict upon men, except he's not the one pronouncing it. Men, by his coming, pronounce the verdict on themselves. That's really what, what all of this is all about, that there is a test Jesus is coming into this world and the proclamation of Jesus to men causes men to judge themselves. He doesn't directly judge them. But light coming into the world brings about a judgment. If you love light, you head for the light. If you love darkness, you run from the light. Do you see what we're saying? The light coming into the world is itself a judgment in which men then will sort themselves into one of two classifications. Now, we're not talking about why some come to the light, and that will be a topic that we'll pick up probably in the next session. But all we're simply saying is, is that according to the New Testament, when Jesus came into the world, and when Jesus is today presented to men in the gospel, they sort themselves into one or two categories. Those who love the light and those who hate the light. Now, you know what happens when you go out in your backyard and pick up an old board that's been laying there for a while. 
As soon as the light hits those bugs underneath it, what do they do? Just run for cover. Why? Because they love darkness rather than light. They want to hide. They don't want to come to the light. And what John is explaining here is that's exactly what the coming of Jesus, the light of the world, into this dark world has done. Light has come into the world. Now what are you going to do? What's your reaction to the light? Or do you see in the New Testament over and over and over again, we have the idea that men hated the light. And they hated it for no other reason than it was light. It was good. It was wonderful. But it was light. Think of the times Jesus healed the man born blind. And he says to the Jews who were criticizing him, For judgment I am coming to this world that they who see might be made blind and those who are blind might see. Think about that. In other words, I've come to sort you into two groups. Are you blind? Then I've come that you see. But do you see? I've come to make you blind. Or when he said, I didn't come to treat the sick, or the whole, but the sick. Are you sick? Then I came for you. Are you not? Well, then I don't have anything for you. Or Paul at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, probably the best place that we see this, after they had preached the gospel there in the synagogue, came back the next Sabbath day, the Jews were filled with envy, drove them out of the synagogue, contradicting what they were saying. And Paul responds this way. He says, it was necessary that the gospel first be preached to you. But seeing ye judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we go to the Gentiles and they'll hear it. Who judged them unworthy of eternal life? They did. By their reaction to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my friend this morning, or afternoon, as the case may be, when the gospel is preached, a sorting, sifting, process is going on. You say, well, you know, the preacher preached the other day and we had a lot of conversions. That means the gospel was preached in power. No, every time the gospel is preached in power, there's going to be a sorting, a classing going on. May I point out to you that Peter preached the gospel and men were pricked in their heart. Stephen preached the gospel and men were pricked in their heart. In one case, thousands were converted. In the other case, they dragged him out of the synagogue and stoned him to death. But the gospel was preached in power in both cases. You say, preacher, you just hate it when people get upset what you're saying. No, I really don't. I get upset when people sit here Sunday after Sunday, unmoved, passive, because that's what worries me. Because when the gospel is preached in power, when the Spirit attends the preaching of God's Word, something's going to happen. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. You'll either find the preaching of Christ the savor of life unto life or the savor of death unto death. It'll smell like the best thing you ever heard or it'll smell like the worst thing you ever heard. And so this morning, I would pray that God would bless us in that He powerfully impress upon our soul what God has done for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I asked you, into which group do you sort yourself this morning. He didn't come to judge the world, he said. Oh, he's coming back one day in judgment. But there's another sense in which for judgment he came into the world.
But this is the condemnation. Lights come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. May I close in magnifying this thing of the love of God? We, again, I I suppose I'm not telling you anything you don't already know by pointing out that this day and this generation is sort of messed up on its definitions and especially its definition of the word love. We use it in some of the most bizarre ways. But our main problem is that we think love is to be measured by how much we love. You know, we think of couples, Romeo and Juliet, you know, they're, they're really in love. That's the best love. That's the highest love. I, I remember reading an old theologian. I can't for the life of me remember who this was. I tried to find it this week. But this fellow was pointing out, he says, you know, the way that you truly know the depth, the strength, the power of love. He says it's not in how much you love that which is lovable and that which is lovely. It's how much you love that which is unlovely. Anybody loves that which is lovely. Right? I mean, it's sort of like Jesus said, even the publicans do that. The worst of men love those that love them. They love their mama. They love their daddy. They love their friends. That's not the measure of love. But this theologian went on to say, he says, you want to see love demonstrated, see it in a mother who has a wayward son that has broken her heart over and over and over again and yet still in spite she loves. Or wife who has a husband who has betrayed her Over and over, and yet her love still extends. Do you understand what the theologian is saying here? That if you want to see love, you really want to see love, don't look for it where, you know, where people are getting something out of it. You know, I've fallen in love. Well, basically I'm saying is I'm getting something out of this. As soon as I don't get anything out of this anymore, forget it. I'm out of here. That's what happens. You want to see love, look for it where there's nothing to be gotten out of it. Every reason to turn and walk away. And yet, not because, but in spite. Love is exercised. That is what John is telling us of the love of God. He loved the world. Think of it. The thing that was so unlike himself, completely opposed to himself, the thing there was every reason for him to wash his hands of and to destroy, he loved. Surely, as Charles Wesley put it, it's love divine. All loves excelling. Nothing else like it. Not just the demerit of the object that he loved, but the thing that he did to secure the affection, the price it cost. He surrendered. 
dearest thing to him, his only son. Let's pray. Father, help us today to, in our small way to comprehend the height and the breadth and the depth of this thing called the love of God. May we be astounded, shocked, amazed at what we read here in this verse. Lord, we've grown so accustomed to it. We take it so matter-of-factly that it doesn't shake us, it doesn't move us, and when we ought to be utterly confounded, speechless, overwhelmed at the statement, God so loved the world. And then to think that our love, that our Father who had no reason, every reason to destroy us, instead moved and surrendered that one thing dearest to himself, his only begotten Son. Lord, may that shake us to the core of our being. And may we be warned that though such a great thing has come into this world, there is still a sorting, a classing going on. That this very coming of light into the world is going to move us one way or the other. We will either turn up our nose at it, ignore it, mock it, or we will be drawn to it. Help us, Father, that it be the latter with us, that we are brought, drawn and brought to the light. For we ask it in Jesus' name.